Welcome back to Venture Studio to the listeners, and welcome back to Venture Studio to one of our favorite guests, David Tisch, who runs Box Group, an early-stage venture investment fund based in New York City. I'm your producer, Kevin Weeks. If you like what you've been hearing on Venture Studio, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or Overcast or however you get your podcasts. All of our episodes, including Dave's first interview with David, are available at VentureStudio.org and SoundCloud.com slash Venture-Studio. You can find us on Twitter at VentureStudio. The last time David Tisch was on Venture Studio, he had just finished the first class of Techstars New York and had recently started angel investing through Box Group. Since then, Box Group has become one of the most prolific New York-based seed investing firms, having backed over 150 companies, including Warby Parker, Blue Apron, ClassPass, Harry's, Handy, and Spring, which David co-founded. Box Group has some notable exits as well, including Sunrise Calendar, Vine, and Behance. On this episode, David talks about why investors get so much press these days, what it means to add value as an investor, why he co-founded Spring, and what's going on at Cornell Tech. Now, let's head on up to the Venture Studio office with Dave Lerner and David Tisch. In the office, baby. Dave, it's great to have you back on the show. How are you? Thanks for having me, David. It's been a bit, but uh, yeah. good to be back. Yeah, it's been a few years. And so so maybe let's take stock here for a minute. Uh, when we last spoke, you'd kicked off Techstars New York. You'd started angel investing via Box Group. You were in a little over 25 companies back then. Now, here we are at the end of 2015. You're in over 150 companies. You've got 17 exits that I know about. You're the most prolific angel in the city. By far, you've now launched a venture-backed mobile shopping company called Spring. I want to hear all about it. I know you got married. Congratulations. Thank you. Who's counting, right? I, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I think yeah. Uh, ideally, ideally the world's evolved a little bit and uh, just trying to be an interesting part of it. No, you've been, you've been busy. And I want to hear about the, uh, your involvement in that, the Cornell uh, Entrepreneurship Program as well. Um, all right, so you know, you're in Warby, you're in Harry's, you're in Blue Apron, you're in so many great companies. Uh, how do you see your role when you invest? You know, what do you consider to be your job when you back these founders? Yeah, I, um, I, I think the biggest myth is that investors make or break companies. And I think in, in sort of uh, a world where there's so many companies, uh, the media tends to look for easy stories. And those easy stories are either great companies or people who are aggregating things, right? Because the people who are aggregating things, investors, are able to talk at a, a horizontal level more than a random early stage startup that really struggles to be part of sort of the zeitgeist or, a, or a, the bigger uh, conversation. And so I think what's happened over the past uh, three, four years is uh, the investors have gotten a bigger uh, profile, uh, but right. that doesn't mean that they, they are affecting companies any more so than in the past or in the future. And so um, the way that I sort of view my role is um, the first thing we do is provide money. Uh, which is a, a really straightforward deal. And the next thing we do is, is hopefully not screw up a company. Uh, after that, you know, what positives can we provide? I think that most investors, and I think the exception is great board members, which I think there are a handful of, not a uh, hundred of. Um, and I think that those sort of great board members are only necessarily relevant in a later stage of a company, not necessarily in the first two years. And so uh, what I sort of group investors is doing is two things. One is making introductions, and two is having pattern recognition. Introductions 
come in the sort of all shapes and sizes, but where I see our ability to to create the most value, if you will, uh, and I, I really don't like that word, um, is in helping companies raise money. I think that that's an area that uh, we've become very good at, mainly because we spend a lot of time building a VC network because we are dependent upon our companies being funded by other people, given the yeah. check size that we write. Right. And now, I mean, Box Group has really evolved. I mean, I know, of course, Adam Rothenberg has been there with you for years, but you've got two other associates oh, now. Three. We're, we're, three. A, team of, we're a team of five. Uh, wow. So tell, uh, tell us a little about uh, the, the, the new folks who are part of Box Group. Yeah, so we... Um, it was Adam and I, and we'd been working together for about five years since uh, Techstars, and, and we left together and, and focused on Box Group full-time. We made a decision about a year ago to expand the team, uh, and we ran a, a process. It was a, uh, a full application process with sort of rounds of interviews and calling it down. We had about 480 people apply, uh, which is crazy, and, and the talent amongst those people were, were incredible, and we got to meet some some really interesting people uh, in that process. and. Uh, we went in thinking we would hire one to two people, and we walked out of the process hiring three. Uh, we brought on a woman named Nimi, uh, Nimi Katragata. Nimi is, um, she just finished HBS. She had worked at Google and, and J.P. Morgan previously. Uh, she sort of fits in Adam's world, which is the, uh, the real business world, where they look at things that make money and have revenue uh, plans. Um, and so that's a, a nice, nice addition to... <laughs> To the firm, um, right, right. And then, then we hired uh, a guy named Greg Rosen. Uh, Greg had spent some time at Raptor, helping them out on their venture stuff. Uh, Greg is uh, technical, and so that added another dimension to what we're doing. Uh, and then we brought on a, a guy named Heston Berkman. Heston just finished up at Penn, uh, which is Adam and I and my alma mater. And uh, Heston had spent some time at the, the dorm room fund and working with the first round guys. Um, and sort of what was nice about the three people we brought on is. Uh, they had had a, a basic experience in venture. And so over the first four months here, we haven't had to teach the basics of meeting entrepreneurs and talking to entrepreneurs. Uh, they came with that skill set. And I think that that was uh, sort of an outcome of what's happened in, in the past three, four years in our industry, which is that venture has sort of come downstream and become slightly more accessible to a wider group of people because of where venture plays. And so you have things like Dorm Room Fund or Rough Draft, which are college-focused funds that allow college students to participate in venture in a different way. And I think that, that uh, those programs really helped us uh, identify people who are capable of joining our firm pretty quickly and, and ramping up. Yeah, you got to take your hat off to first round. And what, what's the other parent company of Rough Draft? Is it General Catalyst? Yep, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I see them at Columbia all the time. Um, I see a lot of students getting their chops early while they're still in school. And it's a great sensibility that they can develop early. And then, frankly, as you can see with you, you've been hiring them, they, they're a lot more experienced and, and valuable to, to the operation when, when they... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the platform that First Round's built over the past four years is um, when you talk about investors adding value... Uh, they're the ones that just stand out to me because they're productizing it and they're figuring out how can we spend money, time, and headcount internally that we can leverage across our portfolio to actually help them. And I, I, I think, you know, first round, Google Ventures and Andreessen, and if you look at the size of the, the second two compared to first round, uh, the impact that first round's been able to make is, is tremendous and, and definitely something I'm impressed with. No, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. You know, let's not uh, count out the box group here. You've got three more people now. 
Uh, you're, you're on the West Coast as well. You know, you're out there looking at deals in Silicon Valley. You're in L.A. You're in New York. Uh, are you institutionalizing what was just, you know, you making nope. angel investment? No, you're not. No. So we have, we have no LPs. We're still uh, an angel fund, for lack of a better word. Um, we take ourselves, we take what we do seriously and we're doing this full time. And so, um, I think, you know, the, the word angel investors got in mucked up here the way I had understood it from the beginning was, uh, investing your money versus other people's money. Uh, today we still invest, uh, personal capital. And I think that uh, that's our plan for, for the near future. Um, we've decided not to raise a fund just mainly because, um, we don't want to write more checks and we don't run or want to write bigger checks. And I think until we sort of run into one of those walls, um, we're going to try to do what we've been doing. And um, I think I probably said this exact line uh, three or four years ago when I was, when I was with you is um, my only understanding and, and sort of the lessons I learned coming into this were to be patient and consistent. And so our view has been let's be patient and consistent and not try to change what we do every year. And so that's, uh, that's sort of how we've approached this. Right. One of the things that has changed over these five years, I remember when we when we last spoke on the show, you were saying how lucky you felt to get into GroupMe. Uh, now, you know, really a lot of entrepreneurs are very hope, hopeful to get in, you know, box group to look at them. Yeah, but I, I still I still feel the same way. We're we're in a service business and we get the right. privilege to work with some incredible entrepreneurs. And when uh, entrepreneurs let us uh, invest in their companies, I think it's an honor and our job is to live up to, to that opportunity. And so I don't, um, I don't think the leverage is switched. I think, you know, sort of what I said earlier is the glorification of investors has definitely changed. Um, but I don't necessarily think we're, we're any better than anybody else. I think we have to work, uh, just as hard as we were, uh, four years ago to, to continue to prove out why somebody should allow us to invest in their opportunity. Right. I love, I love the humility. It's fantastic. Are you still, just for the folks listening, are you still first money in, first round in, so, you know, seed so round? So it's interesting. It's, um, we used to, and, and I used to say this, and, and I used to want to be the first check-in, right? right. That, was, that was a real cool thing to say. It gives an entrepreneur uh, this, this real confidence booster. Um, we stopped doing that, and it sucks. And, and I don't think uh, that was the goal. The reason I stopped doing it was I have, I have no control after that. And so if you're, if somebody's raising a million dollars and you're only writing a hundred thousand or a $200,000 check and you say yes, what you don't know is what's coming after you. And so what I saw happen too often was we would say yes. And then people that we didn't want to work with on the investor side would come in after us. And we would be put in this weird position where we were investing in an entrepreneur we really liked, but the package that was forming around that entrepreneur was not something we liked. And so where we've, where we've moved to now is um, a sort of soft yes, and it's sort of BS to, to do this to entrepreneurs, but we're pretty straightforward about it. The way we phrase it is um, we would love to participate in this round if it comes together as we've discussed it. And so it's a, it's a half yes, and we're happy to make that early on, but what we can't do is commit to working in a, in a syndicate or in a group that isn't something that we support. And um, what does that mean? It means that we think there are bad investors out there. There are investors that will do things that harm companies. And it's not that we don't want to like take the risk of working with them. It's that we don't think that that bodes well for the success of a company. And so we would prefer not to participate uh, if, if 
certain investors get involved in companies because we've seen that pattern recognition before uh, and, and are nervous about that. So that's definitely changed. Um, focus is still on seed rounds, series A's. Uh, we'll participate in a series A. We'll participate or sometimes lead a seed round. Uh, you know, this this pre-seed word, which has emerged, which I don't really believe in. You know, those are the rounds that we'll tend to explore leading. Uh, and leading is sort of a, a three to four hundred thousand dollar check, nothing bigger. Um, and so we've done that a handful of times. Um, and I think the view there is that in those situations, we can be the first yes because we're taking uh, more ownership of of the syndicate and helping it form versus just participating. You also mentioned bad behavior. Uh, not to dwell on the negative, but I think it's useful for, for, it. for people to understand what to watch out for. And, you know, without mentioning names, what do you see? What kind of behavior do you see out there that upsets you from investors? It's, it's non-predictable behavior is the key, right? It's not this action or this action or this firm always does this or this person always does this. It's that there's good, predictable investors. They are going to do things uh, for the long for the long-term benefit of their firm and their reputation. There are other people that trade on short-term. I think the short-term people are what scare me. Uh, the people that are going to uh, create pay-to-plays later on. And as, as you see a downturn in, in a cycle, uh, that happens a lot more. And I think that the investors who want that are the ones you want to avoid. The investors who are you know, out to out to be selfish versus out to understand that as, as a whole, if this thing moves forward, everybody wins. And I think that those are the uh, types of investors. And then there's other ones that just think that they know how to build companies and tell entrepreneurs what to do um, and really create an adverse, uh, adversarial relationship with an entrepreneur and a founder uh, around like strategy. And I think that those are people that uh, we really try to avoid because what we try to do is fund people who are great at, at what they do and are going to become greater at what they do. And I'm not going to probably affect that uh, trajectory, right? I, the idea that, that we as investors know more about the business that an entrepreneur is building is just silly to me. Yeah, and you've gotten to know a lot of investors around the country, and I noticed that was uh, constituted a lot of your company spring. There were like 41 angels, VCs, and frankly, people not from the investment world. Uh, you put together an incredible syndicate. Tell us a little about the story of spring, how it started, what you guys are doing. Yeah, so about literally, I think it's, it's now three years ago, um, my brother came to me. My brother's seven years younger, and uh, you know, he had always had a, a commerce interest. He uh, he was very early in the Nike shoe world. He was buying and selling shoes on the on the message boards and on uh, blogs and uh, eBay. And so he was he was deep in that sort of sneakerhead world before that was an industry. Um, and he came to me and he said, "I have an idea." And I'm like, "Oh no, please don't have an idea. <laughs> go, go get a job." And uh, and and what we started with was the idea that. You know, there are two companies in the world that are able to launch products in, in a prolific way, and those are Apple and Nike, right? They create lines around the corner. People sleep in tents waiting for something to, to launch, and that when a, a normal company launches a product, it goes into their new arrival section on their website. Uh, and if you look at sort of the data, the new arrival section is the, the most commonly clicked on thing on e-commerce sites. And so where we started was how do you how do you extrapolate that into a, a standalone product? Is that is launch platform something that's interesting? Uh, and that was the idea. That was sort of the the spark behind Spring. As we dove into the market, what we sort of learned, and this is I think what 
what happens a lot of the time is, is you start with a spark, you dive in, and you see a different opportunity. Right. And that's what happened here. And so as we started speaking to brands, what became apparent to us was not just uh, launching products, but selling products on your mobile phone um, was really a pain point. And why that's a pain point is if you look at the, the way brands have evolved over the past sort of 10 years, there's been a shift to focus on direct-to-consumer. Mm-hmm. And what that means is brands wholly owned and operated um, venues. And that's online, it's a website, and offline, it's a brand store. And if yeah, you... This, if is you a big, this is a big thing. We, we see it now with Warby Parker, too. They're, they're opening stores they're downtown direct, Manhattan. Warby Parker, H&M, uh, these are direct-to-consumer brands. And what they've been able to do is by just being direct-to-consumer, they're able to bring down their price and, and provide something to customers that's a higher quality at a lower price. Right. And if you look at you know old brands that have sold into department stores and wholesalers for years, they've even been shifting to, to try to become more direct-to-consumer. And so what was happening offline, what was happening online on, on the website, if you try to extend that same desire onto a mobile phone, there was a there was sort of a lack of an answer because our thesis is that customers don't want to download individual brand apps and they don't want to go to the mobile web. And so if you sort of look at those two things, brands that want to create this direct-to-consumer channel are at a loss for how to do that. And so what Spring is, it's, it's probably one of the older ideas on the internet, it's a mobile mall. And so what we're trying to build is a mall where brands can open their own shop, they can control their own merchandising on the shop. So brands on Spring, and we're working with over 800 brands currently uh, on the application, and brands open their own store, they sell their own product, and they control their own destiny on the platform. And so that means when you buy something on Spring, it shows up from the brand. In their box, their packaging, their messaging, it allows the brand to do what it is they do best, which is make products, merchandise those products, and deliver those products to customers and tell their story through that process. And if you look at any of the, the people who are aggregating and selling themselves, so anything from a, a big retailer like Amazon to a department store, what they're taking out of it is the maker's story. When you buy something on one of those other sites, it comes in that site's box with that site's messaging and that site's packaging, and it really minimizes the maker down to the actual product and eliminates everything else that they're able to sort of do. And uh, it also eliminates their margin. And so when you're working with a big retailer, you're giving up 50% of your margin. And when you're selling direct, you're, you're capturing that entire margin. And so what Spring is trying to do is provide that direct-to-consumer margin to brands with the benefit of a consumer aggregated demand side. And so uh, the best of the retailers combined with the best of the business model that the brands get uh, in their wholly owned uh, and operated stores. Right. And I think you launched with like 100 brands on the site. Now you, you say you have 800. Yep. How, how did you overcome what I would imagine to be some reluctance to get on a site where, okay, the end product comes from the brand, but you know, are you is Spring allowing me to have an area on the site that is emblematic of my brand? Am I losing something? Am I turning it over to Spring? I mean, w- was that an issue? Um, absolutely. I think that's a challenge. And, and, you know, the way you overcome that is both product and, and people. And so the first thing we did was we built an incredible team that was able to have these conversations. Just to get in the door of 100 brands was hard enough than to get them to say yes and to get them to put their products on this platform uh, and that needed to be solved with technology. And so what we've really been doing at Spring is building technology that allows 
the standardization of, of e-commerce. And if you sort of look at the evolution of e-commerce, it got fragmented a long time ago, and it's become a pretty big mess. And so integrating into the back-end systems of some of the Fortune 500 brands and, and downstream uh, is not a novel task. And so what we've done is built technology that makes it plug-and-play for the brands. And so without any real technical effort, brands can put their inventory on Spring and can be updated in real time. As they add things to their website, it comes onto Spring. And so the first thing we needed to do was figure out how to make it a minimal effort for the brands to say yes. And that was product. And then the second thing we needed to do was give them a value prop that they were interested in. Why, why is this valuable to them? Uh, and I think the market worked in our favor. I think if you ask uh, the majority of brands how they're going to sell D2C on mobile, it is very hard to answer that question. If you look at the lifestyle section of the app store, which is where um, you know, shopping uh, apps live, which is funny because they're right next to social uh, sort of uh, Tinder, I think, is in that category as well. Um, but in the top 150, the only apps that you saw were aggregators. So anything from a department store to an Amazon to uh, somebody who's just aggregating uh, via sort of you know, weaker technology um, from all these brands. And that's because consumers were showing that they wanted to shop multiple brands in one place versus download multiple apps. And so the markets worked in our favor to allow our pitch to be easier. But um, I, I really do think it, uh, we had to figure out a nuanced pitch. We had to start in a specific vertical and make sure we were able to deliver value to that vertical before we moved out of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we're still playing is uh, in fashion, we're, we're at the higher end of the fashion industry. We're trying to work with brands that are not available on Amazon that aren't interested in sort of opening up uh, access to their their products, but instead have a desire to control their messaging. And so to your point, um, we needed to build the product such that every brand would look and say, we have enough control, but we also have enough value from the platform. And that's a really tight balance that you need to strike. Right. And I know you incubated this thing for a while. Uh, and when I saw the announcement, I, I, I couldn't help but notice that there were so many investors from the, the fashion space, Group Arnault and many others, that, that I frankly had never heard of. How much of a factor was that in putting all this together, having I think it's, I think arms? it's important to align people. And I think that um, as we went out to raise money, one of the important things for us was to make sure that the, the people, the brand owners that we were working with felt some... Uh, alignment to the vision here. And so uh, we went out and raised, as, as you mentioned, money from a lot of different people, but about 25 of them are brand owners. And that was important to us, was just to align our supply side uh, with a long-term vision. And so we were lucky enough to connect with the group R and know people early on in the process and built an incredible relationship with them. Uh, and really understanding uh, how they think about the world. This is one of the, the top 50 companies in the world, and uh, they're, they're incredibly sophisticated. Uh, their brands are, are magical in terms of what they've, they've built. Um, and so just, just making sure that we were able to, to thread a needle to satisfy uh, you know, a, a brand set like that was important to us and have that conversation uh, regularly to, to make sure that we're fulfilling uh, the promise that we need to, to live up to to work with brands uh, of that nature is important to us. Right. And, and in a way, you know, it's kind of a new paradigm and a new paradigm for New York, our tech scene, our investment community. This would never have happened 10 years ago that part of the approach and strategy of putting together a product like the one you've created is informed and greatly aided, frankly, by the uh, these new kind of investors, these venture arms 
Yeah, I, I also, I also, think, I also think it's you know, technology has become more accessible, right? And and if you think about ten years ago, technology meant you had to sit down at a computer and opt in. Every single person in the city today walks around with a, a more powerful computer in their pocket than they had in their home five years ago. And so the proliferation of technology, I think, I think the biggest thing that sort of hasn't been talked about a lot is the eradication of early adopters. Everybody's an early adopter. Everybody has the same access to tech as you know, the early adopters used to have on the web, which would you know, bootstrap and, and kickstart um, some of these sites. I, I think today, when you put something in the app store, anybody can download it. It's accessible to the world. And so you've eliminated early adopters because everybody uses technology. You didn't have a site that had three uh, or a billion daily active users uh, up until a couple years ago. And so you have this new wave of, of the proliferation of technology that I think is affecting how everybody understands these things. And I think that, um, you know, when we went out to raise money, uh, the people who are not, you know, pure tech investors were not tech illiterate. And I think that that's the key. Uh, you're not talking to people who are, um, you know, foreign to technology, but instead uh, they use modern technology. They use the, the, the scaled consumer sites that me and you use. And so I don't think the the education was um, was as hard as it as it was, you know, just five years ago. No, fascinating, really is. Um, speaking of education, uh, the last thing I wanted to hit is your role at Cornell. Cornell's got this new engineering program, this new entrepreneurship program in the city. I think it's still housed at Google, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So we're still at Google. We're we're moving. I'm told in 2017. Okay. Okay, to the to the Roosevelt Island location. Yep. How'd you how'd you get involved in the Cornell program, the startup studio as they call it, and what do you guys do? Yeah, so I um the the two people running the program are a guy named Dan Huddenlocker is the dean of the school, and Greg Pass, who is a, a CTO at Twitter previously, he's the chief entrepreneurial officer. Um, I got into know Dan and Greg lightly. Um, I met Dan when I was running TechStars and. Uh, when I left, we sort of grabbed breakfast one day, and they floated the idea of, "Hey, do you want to get involved?" And I said, "Sure, like happy to help." And uh, I didn't think that meant like actually really get involved. And um, they they came back a couple months later and said, "We have an idea." I'm like, "Okay, I'm like why don't you do this?" And I, I said, "That sounds like a real commitment, guys." I have two other jobs that I'm right. trying to trying to balance here. Um, but the you know the the more we talked, the more it was obvious that this was uh, an incredible. Um, just an incredible effort by so many different uh, constituents, right? You have the city here that's committing to giving up a significant amount of land and a significant amount of money uh, to build a technology-driven school to support the long-term infrastructure of New York City's technology scene. That's awesome, right? Magical. And Cornell, which is this... uh, you know, Ivy League institution and the Technion are combining to build a new school uh, with with an entrepreneurial slant. So what they didn't want to do is just replicate uh, their existing programs, but instead it was how do we create a entrepreneurial focused modern graduate program? Right. That's new. That's interesting. And so what Startup Studio is um, today the the school houses an MBA program, a Master's of Engineering program, a post-PhD program, and then another graduate program in connected media. So you have four different uh, types of students that are coming in. In order to graduate Cornell Tech, you have to go through the startup studio. The startup studio, uh, you start a company in in the school that is a a class. It's a three-hour class, but the expectation is you spend 10 to 20 hours of your schoolwork on this class a week uh, starting a company. And that company should be cross 
uh, multidisciplinary. So uh, we're encouraging MBAs and, and master of engineering students to work with each other, not just work in, in silos, uh, to start companies. And the hope and sort of if you go back, the, the students that are coming into the school want to be entrepreneurs. They want to learn more about entrepreneurship and they have an entrepreneurship uh, focused mentality. And so you're giving them an opportunity to work on a company in school as a quasi-academic exercise, but also uh, with the goal of some of these students continuing on afterwards and trying to build companies. And so if you look at uh, the best academic institutions, Stanford, Carnegie Mellon, Penn, Harvard, uh, they've been producing companies directly out of school for years. And I think the goal here is how do you make that more of the DNA of the school versus an accidental outcome? And I think that uh, the curriculum that we've built at Cornell Tech and the startup studio specifically are geared at that, is encouraging students to take more risks while they're in school around starting companies. Right, and, and I, love, I love the cross-listing aspect, the multidisciplinary aspect of getting people with different sensibilities, different backgrounds in the same environments. That uh, theoretically is going to create better ideas, better approaches, right? Isn't that part of That's the equation here? That's 100% the hope here is that yeah. you're bringing people – because companies aren't built with one DNA these days. It takes – you know, consumer companies need to be great at marketing. They need to be great at telling their story. They don't just need to be, be great at building a product. A great product is table stakes now, right? Yeah. If you go back on mobile four years ago, if you built a great product, you won. There weren't, there weren't that many good ones, and so everybody used a great product. Today, there's a lot of incredible products out there that doesn't get you uh, where you need to get, and so it's a combination of skill sets. So I don't want to minimize engineering because I think great engineers uh, make, make a bigger difference than, than just about anything, but so do great designers and great storytellers, and the multi, multidisciplinary skill set that's required to build a scaled company today uh, is getting more and more diverse and more complicated, and uh, the places that technology reaches is also getting more diverse and complicated. And so uh, technology is interrupting and, and changing industries. It's also uh, accessible to more and more uh, different demographics of people at different socioeconomic levels. And I think that proliferation of technology through the smartphone unlocks more and more entrepreneurial opportunities for people with different backgrounds that have different right. perspectives. And I think that that's what we're trying to do at Cornell is bring a bunch of different people who started in a different place together who are going to come out and work on a, a tremendous amount of, of different things uh, given that set of background. Yeah, this is, this is the new approach four universities. It's going to be so great for New York City. You know, at Columbia, we've got 17 graduate schools. We've, we've set up these labs where so many of them can come together in one physical space and get to know each other and collaborate and think of better ideas. I know yep. Frank Rimolovsky at NYU is doing great things. So it's like to it, see these things happening in New York City with the great universities working together, creating these new programs, it's, it's just, I think it's going to be huge. Yeah, and I, th I think what the key is, is it's long term, right? And what, what none of the, the schools are, and no school tends to be short term in, in nature anyway, but um, you're building an infrastructure here and, and it's going to take time for that to sort of play out. But I think you're, you're seeding it with some real incredible talent. And I think, you know, the, the main thing about Cornell Tech to me that was different was, um, how built into the core curriculum. This wasn't a, yeah. an after-school activity. This is not about uh, opting in. This is about when you show up, you're ready to go. And right, it's built into the fabric of the whole program. Uh, absolutely. And I think, um, for me, the most interesting thing, uh, so last year there were 85 students. There were 25 companies that came out of this. This year there are, are, are over 100 students. Um, the biggest difference is 
you know, the students want to be there to, to learn about uh, startups. They want to start companies. They have this entrepreneurial DNA. Um, and so you're, you're even curating it in the application process. People who sign up for a brand new school that's entrepreneur focused, um, they're opting in. You don't have to force them and you don't have to teach them. They're already leaning into to wanting to build something. And I think that that's awesome. One of the things I love about you stylistically, you're not afraid to tell some entrepreneurs that they need to get their shit together. But now you're now that you're in house, and I it's and frankly, hard, I, I brought you teacher, into right? to my classes at Columbia, and you've just you know wiped the floors with people. Now that you're on the quote inside, and you're part of the startup studio, have you tempered uh, your approach at all, or are you just letting them so know yes, this is yesterday reality? Yesterday was my first. Uh, I, got, I got to meet the the new class of students and. Uh, Greg, who I work with, uh, he likes to drop me in hard, I guess. Okay. Um, he, uh, so, so yesterday right. was office hours where the students were coming with their ideas and they would just pitch us on their ideas and we would give them critique on that. Yeah, you, you have to be honest, right? And I think that sugarcoating things in our industry is a disservice to people. It doesn't mean you should listen to me. I'm wrong more than I'm right. But I want to be honest and I want to sort of give you my, my real opinion and real reaction. Um, and that's just the data point. And I think that's the key is that you don't put yourself on a pedestal where it's listen to me, I'm right. But instead, here's my opinion. It's data. You decide what to do with it. Uh, and, and I hate the idea of not sharing uh, my honest reaction. And, you know, so someone yesterday, and, and this will sound familiar to you, pitched the idea of, um, you know, software that allows you to meet people at events and meet other people at conferences. And it will be an optimized solution for who you should talk to and who you'll get along with. And oh, I, I looked at that person. And I said, that is the idea I've heard pitched more than any idea over the past seven years. Number one. And number two is local recommendations. And so um, that data in itself, and this entrepreneur looked at me like, really? Like, I, I didn't know that. Um, and I think just that in and of itself is valuable to know that you're not the first person to think of this. There's a reason why uh, some of these things don't work. Where I get frustrated with entrepreneurs is when they don't do homework, right? Where, where you're not learning the history of, of the space that you're working in and sort of why things have worked or why things haven't worked. And I don't think it's important to obsess over history, but I do think it's important to get the context of the area that you're working in in order to figure out a strategy that uh, is not replicating someone else's failure before, or if you are understanding what shift has happened in the market to allow your strategy to work now when it hasn't in the past. And so uh, that's, that's my sort of angle in, in this world is I try to be as much of a historian as I can. And the breadth of what I can see can help uh, inform other people by pointing out uh, sort of the history of spaces or the history of startups in certain spaces. Why or why things have not worked is uh, important to me. It, my background, I, I was a history major in college and then a lawyer, and it, it might come down to just my framework of thinking about things is uh, through understanding history and, and sort of logic into future stuff. And that's my perspective. And I try to bring that to, to the way that I provide feedback as well. Yeah, and, and they're lucky to have you and wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks. Listen, my friend, it's been great to have you back. Uh, thanks thanks for, for all you do in New York City. Really appreciate it. Everyone does. And uh, we'll have you back again. Appreciate the kind words, and it's great to be back. I'll talk to you soon. We'll be talking, my friend. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know? Hey everyone, Dave Lerner here. I hope you're liking the Venture Studio podcast. 
If you have any questions, feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, you can reach us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud as well. Thanks. I appreciate the support as always.